Today we'll be talking about Hosea 1 and 2, and as Malachi said, it's, it's God's marriage to his people, which is certainly providential because tonight we're going to be celebrating a marriage, which is a, a beautiful and a wonderful thing. So today, as we're looking at Hosea 1 and 2, my hope is that this text, in this text, you will see God's beautiful, wonderful attributes, especially as they are contrasted with the reality of the people that he calls to himself. Before we begin, if you've ever heard me preach before, you, like, you know that I like to talk about a few introductory matters, so I want to talk about three big things before we get into our text today. The first one is that Hosea is in this section of the Bible called the Prophets. So he is actually the first book of what is known as the Minor Prophets. They are so-called because they are smaller in length and they were all, actually all gathered together. It's also known as the Book of the Twelve. The prophets were men who preached the message of God to draw God's people back to himself through repentance. I don't know what comes into your mind as you hear the word prophet, but that is what the prophets did in the Old Testament. They preached God's word of warning and of judgment to call God's people back to himself. In fact, there are three main points to their message. I talked about this in December when I was preaching in Micah. Those three points of the prophet's message are this. Israel and Judah... You've broken God's covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law, and you need to repent. That's point number one. Point number two is, if if you don't repent, there's going to be judgment through exile, which we're going to see a little bit in our text today. And then point three, even though you're not going to repent, and even though there's going to be judgment, there's hope beyond the judgment, because God will restore you to himself through a Davidic Messiah, which we will also see in our text today. So that's, that's the main message of the prophets. And those first two things get the vast majority of the space. Uh, the next thing that, that we need to know, so the second thing we need to know before we dive into our text, is the historical and the theological context of Hosea. This should actually be a little bit easier for us. We just got through the book of Jonah. Jonah's context is basically the same as Hosea's context. They're They're contemporaries. Hosea is probably just a few years later. They're both 8th century prophets. They're prophesying at the same time as Isaiah, or if you've been in Sunday school recently, we've gone through the book of Amos. Jonah and Micah are all prophesying around the same time in the 8th century B.C., which is the 700s B.C. When we look at Hosea 1.1, Hosea 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it names off those kings. You can see a conversation of those kings starting in 2 Kings 14 and in 2 Chronicles 26. You can read all about them. Those are the kings of Judah in the south. Some of them are so-so kings. Those first two that are mentioned are so-so kings. The next one is a horrible king. He's terrible. He, he sacrifices his own children and the temple, and different things like that. So, so you can read about that in Second Chronicles 28. So he is not a good king. But then Hezekiah, that last king mentioned, is a very good king. But the people who Hosea is preaching to aren't primarily those people from the south in Judah. They're going to be primarily the people from the north in the kingdom of Israel, because the kingdom had been split for a couple of hundred years at this point. And he mentions the king that had the longest reign in that period, Jeroboam, who is the same king that was mentioned in 2 Kings 14 when we were going through Jonah that we talked about. This is Jeroboam II. Israel was experiencing a time of prosperity. 
but they were doing so at the cost of, uh, of basically justice within their society. So he's prophesying sometime in the mid to late 700s. He's prophesying mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel, which he also refers to as Ephraim throughout the book. So historically, Assyria, this world empire, is looming on the borders, and they're soon going to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. This will actually happen in Hosea's time. This is, uh, and Hosea is pointing to this as a warning. The kingdom of Israel had a series of kings, starting with, with Jeroboam, who's the end of Jehu's line, and then a series of other kings who are leading into the decline of the kingdom and who are about to go into the exile in Assyria. That's the context historically. Theologically, the context, the, 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 the thing that, I, that Hosea is really wanting us to understand is that Israel is idolatrous. The people are idolaters. This is happening throughout the 8th century, and it's particularly happening with the worship of a god and all of, all of the deities under him known as Baal. You're probably familiar with Baal from Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal who he confronted at Mount Carmel. It makes it into most children's, children's Bibles and different things like that. that it's the same, same deity there. Baal is a god of fertility. He is the Canaanite storm god. And worship of him happened on the high places throughout the northern kingdom of Israel, particularly starting a few generations before this with Ahab and Jezebel. If you're familiar, that's when Elijah was preaching. And it had happened before that, but that's when it becomes like an official kind of thing within Israel, the northern kingdom. So historically... God is warning his people that Assyria are coming, that the Assyrians are coming and they need to repent. Theologically, the thing that he's warning them about is that they are idolaters and they need to repent of that idolatry. So the third thing before we jump into the book that we need to understand is that Amos or Hosea is going to start off with a particular type of prophecy. So the prophets can seem very strange to us. Martin Luther had a very great quote about how he doesn't understand, he can't make heads or tails of who the prophets are. And, and, And... if we don't read them regularly, that makes sense. But one of the things that the prophets do is they'll, they'll come with these different kinds of statements and speeches to people. So in our text today, we're going to start off and we're going to see that Hosea is going to present what is known as an enactment oracle or a sign act oracle. You don't have to remember that at the end of it. Just know that what he's doing is he is playing out in his own life what God is telling him to preach. So God is giving him this thing to rehearse in front of the people so that they will see his life and his words and we will see that the two things conform together. Ezekiel had a number of these and Ezekiel like four and five. But what Hosea's enactment oracle is, what he has to act out in front of the people is that he is told that he is supposed to marry a prostitute. And he is told that he's supposed to marry a prostitute because Hosea is going to stand in the place of God, showing a faithful husband, and Gomer, Hosea's wife, is going to stand in the place of God's people, Israel, and show an unfaithful wife. So he's supposed to live this out in front of them. In chapter 2, we're going to see a litigation uh, to an adulterous woman, so it's going to move into a different kind of oracle or a different kind of prophecy. But that's the kind of prophecy that we're going to see as we jump into the text of Hosea today. So with that, the main point of this text is that God has always been faithful 
even when his people have not been. And God will bring about the faithfulness of his people by making them his bride. That's the big idea. That's the main point of this text. So the big idea, so that's what this text is saying. Well, how are we then going to apply that? We're going to apply that because the church is Christ's bride. And we are called to love our God in faithfulness because he has had mercy on us and called us to be his people. So I'll repeat that again, the point of the text. God has always been faithful, even when his people have not been. God will bring about the faithfulness of his people by making them his bride. And then the way that we're going to see that theologically applied to us is the church is Christ's bride. And we are called to love our God in faithfulness because he has mercy on us and has called us to be his people. So the first point that we're going to see is going to be chapter 1, verses 2, through the end of the chapter, which is verse 11. This is where Hosea is going to marry Gomer to picture God and his relationship with his people. So I will read this. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and she bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, No Mercy. Some of your translations may say, Lo Ruhama. It's just spelling out what it sounds like in Hebrew. For I will, have no, I, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. Or lo ami, if your your Bible just transliterates it. For For you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. There are a lot of things going on in that text. I think that I can boil it down to just a few things that you need to understand about what's going on there. First, Hosea was told to marry a prostitute to demonstrate God's relationship with his people. I've mentioned that a couple of times, but that's a big idea that you need to grasp. Hosea stood in the place of God who is faithful. Gomer stood in the the place of Israel, God's people, who was unfaithful. Hosea had to live out this message to demonstrate and show to the people who God is and who they are. The prophets were often reluctant to do these kinds of things, as you could imagine. But Hosea does. The charge against God's people, because of the charge against Gomer, Hosea's wife, 
was pretty graphic, wasn't it? Harry asked me if during the, the reading we were going to read the, the, the section that I read in, in verses 2 and 3. Go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And I said, not in the, not in the reading, but I'll read it up here. This is graphic language. Some of you are shocked that, that this is in the Bible. Some of you are, might be shocked that I even read it this morning. Uh, I think that it's actually helpful that we read texts like this on occasion because they jar us, don't they? They make us a little bit uncomfortable. And God is painting a picture here that they would very keenly understand their idolatry is spiritual adultery, right? So, so he is connecting their idolatry to a spouse who would cheat on another spouse. This is something that we can viscerally understand. It's hard, I think, for us to abstractly understand that that God could be upset at our idolatry. But when we think of relationships that we're in and someone being unfaithful in that relationship to the the extent of adultery, we can really keenly feel that and understand that. God wants the people of Israel to know that's what you have done. And by the way, if you think that this is a graphic a graphic chapter, read Jeremiah 3 or Ezekiel 16. This is like PG compared to those chapters. So he's trying to show them the gravity of their sin by using this strong language. Then the next thing to know is that Hosea and Gomer, they have three children. So there's a lot of discussion about this throughout church history within scholarship. The first one is named Jezreel, which is a valley in Israel. This valley is is connected to several important events. But I think that the event that that Hosea and God are connecting it to when it says that he will cut off the house of Jehu from the valley of Jezreel is he's saying to them, I'm going to end Jehu's line, of which Jeroboam is in. So Jehu is just a, a king who ruled a couple of generations before this. I'm going to end Jehu's line because of the blood of Jezreel. There are a couple of options, but I think one makes more sense. And what happened in Jezreel was Ahab murdering Naboth to steal his vineyard. It's at the end of the book of 1 Kings. I think that that's the context. He's saying, I'm going to judge them for all of what Ahab did, even though Jehu ended Ahab's line. You can read about that really all the way from the end of 1 Kings to 2 Kings chapter 11. So he's going to judge them and he's going to punish them. So his naming of his child Jezreel is a, well, it's a, it's a name of judgment. It's not a name of, of joy. So when you're thinking of baby names, maybe not Jezreel, right? Or not loved or no mercy, whatever your translation might say there. Probably not the best baby names. So the next child is named no mercy or not loved, some translations will say. Lo Ruhama, some of your translations will say as well, which is just the the way that it sounds in the original. Some people will try to say that this child wasn't Hosea's child because it doesn't say she bore to him like it does in the previous text. Some scholars say we don't have enough information to know. I don't know that that's the point of the text. I don't want to dwell there. It's possible one way or the other. But the point of this text is that this child is going to be, again, a sign of judgment. So there are these children that are born, Jezreel, no mercy, and then we're going to see another one here in a moment. And they're serving as signs, as messages. This isn't the first time 
Or this, isn't, this isn't the only time that this has been done in prophetic history. Later on, as Isaiah is preaching, again, a contemporary, uh, later on as he's preaching, he is going to have his children serve as signs as well. If you read Isaiah 7 and 8, he even names one of his, child, one of his children after that, Maharshal Hashbaz, in chapter 8, that signals the, the judgment that is to come. So this isn't unheard of. So this child, no mercy, it's either for that or he really liked the karate kid in the Cobra Kai Dojo. Some of you will get that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry. The third child is not my people, lo ami. Again, many suppose that this is not Hosea's child because it doesn't say, and she bore to him like it did with Jezreel. Again, I don't think that that's the the main point of the text, but it, it, it might be the case. But the language that we see here, you are not my people and I am not your God, the language that's used with the naming of this child is the reverse of the covenant. So there's this, there's this statement that is made throughout the Bible known as the covenant formula. It's, I am your God and you are my people, or I will be your God and you will be my people, or something like that. The pronouns shift a little bit, but that's the statement. So God is the God of his people. They dwell together in harmony. That's the idea. But what he's doing here is he's reversing that language, right? You are not my people. I am not your God. It's the reverse of Ruth chapter one, right? When she says, you are my people, you will be my people and I will have your God. It's the reverse of that kind of thing. They would have read this and this would have terrified them if they were understanding what God was saying here. This is big. But then in the last section there, that last part of chapter 1, we see that God kind of unexpectedly and suddenly reverses the judgment that they deserve and acts with love and redemption instead. Verse 9 ended with that covenant language that was broken because they'd broken the covenant. They'd broken the Mosaic covenant. But then he starts up again in verse 10 and says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea that can't be measured. And those people will be called children of the living God. And they will appoint one head for themselves, and great will be the day of Jezreel. Well, it didn't look so great when he was naming his child Jezreel, but that day will be great. So he ends by talking using language from the Mosaic Covenant in verse 9, saying, you've broken this, and judgment is going to come. But then in verse 10, he introduces new covenant language. Language that they would have known. Language that reflects creation and language that was explicitly stated to Abraham. That your descendants will be like the sand and the seashore. He also says in those texts from Genesis 12 through 22, and they will be like the stars of the sky, and they will be like the dust of the earth, which can't be numbered. But here, the hearer of Hosea and the reader of this text should see that while they've broken this covenant, God's promises through the Abrahamic covenant still ring true. Why? Well, because he's Hosea. He's the faithful husband. He's not the faithless, unfaithful spouse. So as I think about this, and I think about what this looks like in our life, throughout the history of the Old Testament, Israel was unfaithful while God remained steadfast and faithful to his covenant. If you're a keen reader of the Old Testament, you'll notice this. It appears on almost every page. If you want a good sample of this, read Joshua 24, where it talks about God's faithfulness and the people say that they'll obey God, and then read the very next chapter, Judges chapter 1. And you see this contrast between God's faithful character 
and the unfaithfulness of his people, Israel. So in this text, we see the nature of God in full, beautiful, wonderful display. God is holy. God is true. God is faithful. This idea of the faithfulness of God permeates Scripture so much that Paul, when he's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says that this is a trustworthy statement. And at the end of it, he says, if you are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. It is an intrinsic part of who he is. God cannot be unfaithful. He is the always ever faithful one. It is part of his nature. Man, I hope that that helps you to have faith in him as you see his faithfulness. But we also get this picture that we, as we're in this scenario, we are not Gomer, or we are not Hosea, are we? We are Gomer. We are the unfaithful ones. That is who Israel is, and that is we who are left to ourselves, in and of ourselves, are. Luckily, it's not going to end there. I'm not going to spoil it yet. But in the, in the next section, it's going to talk about how God's going to fix this problem that we have. This problem of unfaithfulness. And we know that he's going to do that by marrying us to himself in faithfulness. Another thing that we see in this text is that graphic language. Again, it might have been shocking for some of you to hear. Some, there's some younger children in here as, as well. But one of the things that this shows us is how serious God takes sin. God calls his people into intimate covenant relationship with him. And to go against that is likened, it's compared to a cheating spouse. I pray that we won't take our sin lightly, but that we take it very seriously. Understanding what God has called us to. And that is the most wonderful, gracious, awesome thing ever to be in relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit. Another thing that we see is something that we'll see in the next text as well, in the next section, is that God's ultimate plan is that hope beyond the judgment, that grace, even in the face of the people's unfaithfulness. And that should astound us, shouldn't it? That even in the way that we have acted toward God, his people have acted, that God has redeemed us and saved us and loved us anyway. That is a thought beyond my comprehension. That God has called to himself these sinners. Well, in this next part, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we're going to see there's a regression. So you got that little sliver of hope. But now what's going to happen is Hosea is going to present Basically, a, 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 a lawsuit a, and a charge against an adulterous wife that's going to morph into, and it's going to, to, to bleed into, this charge that God is bringing against his people Israel for their unfaithfulness. And that's in 2, 1 through 13. But the point of this text is going to be the accusation against Israel for her unfaithfulness. So 2, 1. And you'll notice 2, 1 is going to serve as a hinge here. Say to your brothers, you are my people and your sisters, you have received mercy. So say to Israel, like this is who they should be. And then he's going to plead with them. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day when she was born. And make her like a wilderness 
and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who received them, she who conceived them, has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all the mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the, of the bales when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So a few things about this text. Hosea kind of doubles down on that that graphic language here too, doesn't he? Where he presents this legal action against an adulterous wife and then it moves seamlessly into God's relationship with his people. It begins with the prophet asking the people to respond to this unfaithfulness that was presented in that enactment oracle in chapter 1. The plea is that Israel would stop her adulteries, which is, of course, idolatry. But she didn't. And she attributed all of those blessings and those good things that had come into her as coming, coming from her lovers, from Baal, the Canaanite god. So she pursued him, but what did God do? He hedged up her way with thorns so that she couldn't overtake him. And then as a last resort, she says, well, I guess I'll return to God. It used to be better. All the while never realizing that it was God who had given her all of those good things. So what is God going to do? He's going to show her that it was him who gave all of those good things by taking them away. This language is a very clear contrast showing that it is Yahweh the Lord who provided these things for her and not Baal because all of those things wool and flax and you know uh, the, the, the plenty of the land that would have all been seen as Baal's t- territory that would have been the things that he provides and as God takes those away he's saying uh-uh I alone am God I'm the one who gave those things to you And notice that that charge, and this is going to be the charge that Hosea levels against them in chapter 4 when he really gets to the judgment section. And you're like, really gets to the judgment? Yeah, chapter 4 really gets to the judgment section. We're not going to look at that today. But his charge against them is that they do not know the Lord. They do not know the Lord. So God is going to judge her for following after the Baals, her lovers. 
God is not okay with Israel's unfaithfulness, and he pleads with his people to repent and to return to him. He wants what's best for them, even when they don't realize what's best for them. And the knowledge of God is central here. The knowledge of God biblically here and and elsewhere in the Bible is this idea of knowing who God is and what God does, right? Because those are important things, right? To, To know what his character is, knowing who he is, what he does, what he has done, what he's doing, Right? And those things are, are found in Scripture. Right? We, we need to know that. That is, that is part of knowing God. But that also melds itself into knowing God is to be in relationship with God. You've probably heard that phrase, to know in the biblical sense. Right? It's, it's a word that's used for intimate relationship. And that's how it's used throughout Hosea. Isaiah uses it very similarly. In Isaiah 1, I think it's, in, it's starting in verse 2, it's right there, right after the, the introduction. He says, he says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And his judgment against him is that his people don't know and that his people don't understand. God's people don't know or understand who he is. But that idea of the knowledge of God, it doesn't stop at knowing enough to win a Bible trivia game, Right? It doesn't, it, it, it's not, that's not the, the point of it. It's not just to know facts and figures about God, like you know for your favorite baseball players or whatnot. But it's knowing those things so that you can be in relationship with him through his son by his spirit. Because make no mistake, you have to know those things to be in relationship with him. If somebody said, tell me what your God's like, and you're like, I don't know, I love him though, but I don't know what he's like, you don't love God. Because you don't know God. Theology in our day has a bad rap. Many people will say, I'm not a theologian, I don't want to be a theologian. Well, the truth is that we're all theologians. Some of us are just really bad theologians. But again, the point of this is not to know things about God that are, that are, that are torn out of the context of relationship, but to know who God is so that we can be in relationship with him. Think about the person that you are in the best relationship with. It could be a a sibling, a spouse, a parent. You are in relationship with them and you want to know what's going on with them, what they've done, what they're doing. It should be the same with us and God. But here, sadly, the people are portrayed as trying to return to Baal even when Baal is shown to be dust and air, false. This would be like us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that Christ's redemption is wonderful, and tried to find satisfaction in something else. We've never done that, have we? (laughs) No, I'm thankful for, for Harry's prayer this morning. We have done that. We, who have the Spirit dwelling inside of, who have been covered with Christ's righteousness, we have thought that possibly there's something sweeter out there for fleeting moments. If you are in Christ, that will not last. But the good news is, God has done something to us to make us crave and desire something greater. And that's what he gets to in this last point, point three, which is the last part of Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23. We read most of this section. And God is going to allure his people by making them his faithful bride. 
God is going to allure his people by making them his faithful bride. So starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, because of all of these things, because of who she's done, because of my judgment upon her, because of her going after the Baals, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my husband. For I remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for her a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall, they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This text is Beautiful. Note how God calls his people to himself in the midst of their adulteries and idolatry. This is how God works. He doesn't say, fix yourself up and then we'll talk later. He redeems his people. He calls them to himself. He allures them and woos them to himself. And then he says, now live like my people. If it were the other way around, we would have absolutely no hope. And he does this, this calling of himself by reversing history. Did you notice how he does that? Many of you, you may not have caught this, but he starts off with this little nugget that's very beautiful, where he says, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Immediately when the people entered into the land, they went to Jericho and they had this this great defeat. But this guy by the name of Achan, he decided he was going to keep some of the devoted things. And he hid them in his tent. I don't know if you remember this story. But when he did that, Joshua and Israel, they presumed to continue on with the conquest. And they lose to a very vastly inferior force after this. And they're freaking out. And they don't know what's going on. And Joshua even says to God, God, what about, what about the name of your people and your great name? What's going on here? And God says, there are some of the devoted things among you. That happened in the Valley of Achor. This first sin, once they entered into this land of rest that they were supposed to be in, God is saying to them, so the reader of this text knows this, right? The person who's reading this text, the valley of Achor, that time in Joshua when you sinned and you kept the devoted things that weren't mine, or that weren't yours, that were mine, that valley of Achor that ended in judgment will become a door of hope. It's bracketing history with judgment now becoming hope. I could give a lot of sports analogies here. I'll spare you of those. They would involve the Kansas City Royals and winning and losing World Series recently and stuff like that. But the val- this, this, this tragedy 
right, becomes a doorway for promise and hope now. So he does this by reversing history, and we'll get to more of that later. And notice in the text how he talks to him, how he will talk to her as it was at first. He's saying it's going to be like the honeymoon again, right? It's going to be like the honeymoon again, like they were when they first left Egypt, like for five minutes, because about 10 minutes down the road, they were saying, are we there yet? And notice in verse 17, how God is going, first verses 16 and 17, how God is going to so far remove idolatry. You probably noticed this as I was reading the text. I changed a word, but I changed the word with its translation instead of with a transliteration. So verse 16 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. There's a, there's a Hebrew word there. It's ishi. You will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me, it says, baali, or my baal which is another common word for husband or master or lord. So the, the mistress of a house is referred to as a ba'alah. Like she's the mistress of the house. It's just a common word. It doesn't even in its common form have connections to, to the Canaanite storm god. So here I think he's, he's using this common word and he's saying, in those days you will call me my husband. You'll use the word ishi when you're talking to me. You will no longer call me Baali. Why? Because I will remove idolatry so far from the land that even the common use of the name Baal will be gone forever. To them, that would, that would be a strong statement because this was just a common word that's used a lot commonly in the Old Testament. It's going to be so far removed. He's going to remove that idolatry. And God is going to reverse everything by marrying to his people, his people to himself in a new covenant. And notice how he describes this covenant with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air. This covenant is going to bring about a new creation where my people will dwell in safety and in security, where I will betroth them to me forever in justice, in righteousness, in covenantal love and in faithfulness. It's not going to be like it is today. It's going to be very different. And the end of that will be, and you will know the Lord. And notice how he says that this will come about. This is beautiful. He calls on the witnesses to the covenant that they've broken. Usually, in, in, the, in the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai, there are these witnesses to the covenant that are supposed to hold the parties responsible for what they've said they'll do and what they won't do. And the witnesses to those covenant are the heavens and the earth. You see it in Deuteronomy 40, or sorry, Deuteronomy 4. You see it in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. These, these covenant witnesses are the heavens and the earth. So usually, like with that Isaiah text, hero heaven, give hero earth, you know, judgment's about to come because he's going to say you've broken the covenant. Here, what, what God is doing through Hosea's words is he's saying, listen up, covenant witnesses, I'm about to add something to what I will do. And it's joyful. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and they shall answer the grain and the wine, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will reverse history. I will have mercy on no mercy, and to not my people, I will say, you are my people, and they shall say to me, you are my God. Notice that this is not based upon anything that his people did, but it's based upon God's good grace. God changes 
the nature of his people by bringing them into right relationship with himself through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And you know, I had to put this, this somewhere. This text is screaming for us to understand what's going on throughout the Bible. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, so here we've got a picture of God being this husband who is presenting his wife as a faithful, beautiful, lovely bride. Paul, in Ephesians 5, tells husbands that they're supposed to love their wives and wives that they're supposed to submit to their husbands. And at the end of that section, he says, and this is a mystery, but I've actually been talking about God's relationship to his people, Christ and the church. Well, it's, it's really not a huge mystery if you've read through Scripture. Because these pictures of God being in relationship with his people are found throughout. Jeremiah 2 and 3 use it. Ezekiel uses it all over the place. Even in the text that we were in in Sunday school this morning, you see this language where God is telling the people in Deuteronomy to cleave to him. In the same way that he says that a husband will leave his father and mother and cleave to his spouse. He's saying cleave and cling to me. This relational marital language is used of God and his people all throughout the Bible and it is used pointedly here in Hosea. I don't know whether Paul, as he says, husbands love your wives in that text, if he's reflecting specifically on Hosea, but certainly he's, he's reflecting on this span of texts that show God's relationship to his people in this way. So husbands, as you mirror and image God in your relationship with your wife, are you doing what God is doing here? Are you presenting her as blameless and spotless, as beautiful? Is your desire to see her holiness and to see righteousness and mercy in your relationship? Have you even thought about that? It's not the honeymoon anymore, is it? With your relationships. Well, maybe for a couple of you, right? Lee and Jasmine, Josh and Gia. There's a couple, right? Uh, But... Those, those honeymoons quickly wear off, don't they? Have you forgotten, allure your wife to yourself, desire to present her before God, to the glory of God, as a beautiful, spotless bride? And how do you do that? By giving yourself up. By sacrificing yourself. Not looking out what is best for you, but looking out what is best for her and your family in God's kingdom. Brides, wives, lovingly submit to your husbands. Help them. Cheer them. Pray for them. Talk with them. When I perform uh, uh, the, the wedding sermon, whenever I give a wedding, one of the things that I like to say is I give a warning. It's actually pretty grim. I don't know why anybody would ever want me to, to perform their wedding. But I give this warning, and I had the, the opportunity to do this with two of my students that they had actually met in one of my, my classes um, earlier this summer. And I said to them, when the world, when you go out and you live out your marriage, you will be speaking the gospel to them. And if your marriage is filled with rancor and division 
and hatred, you will be lying to the world about who God is and what God has done with his people through Christ. But if your marriage is filled with joy and others-centeredness, a focus on the glory of God, then you will be showing them the beautiful picture of God's relationship to his people. Husbands and wives, that is what we are called to and we can't do that on our own. We need the grace of God and we need the patience of others to help us do that. People of God, know the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. This text is quoted in 1 Peter 2, where Peter says, you who are not a people are are God's people, and you who had not received mercy have received mercy. In 1 Peter 2, Peter quotes this, and he's talking to a church that is largely comprised of Gentiles. God has wooed you to himself. Ephesians 2 says that, We were wandering around in darkness after the prince of the power of this world. That's Satan, for those of you keeping track at home. And we were, later on in the text, it says, without hope and without God in this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. He has done that through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. His atoning sacrificial death on the cross his resurrection from the dead, which defeated sin and death. And he calls us, he allures us. He pleads with us to respond to that in faith. And that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be hard because he is faithful. But he has called you who were not God's people to be God's people. Oh, what a glorious thought. As I think about this text in total, Hosea 1 and 2, a long text. Thank you for bearing with me we see that God accomplishes this marriage of his people to himself in faithfulness in a very specific way. We saw alluded to at the end of chapter one how they will set one head over them. And Hosea actually unfolds this in Hosea three, where Hosea is told to go again and allure his wife, to love her, to purchase her again out of her adultery, And it says that the people of Israel will dwell without household gods, without idolatry for a time. They're going to go into exile. But then in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And David their king, David had been dead for a couple hundred years now, and they shall come in fear of the Lord to his goodness in the latter days. For Israel... They were looking forward to this future David who was to come. This is something that's future to them. For us, who are in the new covenant that was inaugurated with the spilt blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, this is a present reality. We are wedded to God in Christ. God has made us his people by making us the bride of the bridegroom, the great son of David, Jesus We are his people who are betrothed to himself in faithfulness, and he will present us as his spotless bride because he gave himself up for us. He gave us his righteousness so that when the Father sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And one day we will sup with him 
in the greatest marriage feast of all time. Malachi kind of spoiled the thunder because he knows biblical theology. Thanks, Malachi. Um, Revelation 19 presents this marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the culmination of the hope of the people of God, which is to dwell with God. And this is what it says. I'll just read part of it again, and I'll read a a little bit more. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Have you made yourself ready? It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Blessed are you who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, we have been allured by our God. We know our God. Let us live like it. Let's pray.